Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh. On today's show, we have Dr. Reina Oddish. She's a pulmonary critical care doctor at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. She also wrote the book, In Shock, My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. How are we guys? So good. Uh-uh. And you, Joe? I'm good. Good to see you guys. Joe, you have a colonoscopy coming up soon, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Can't, can't, can't wait. We're going to... No, we're going to make a whole episode of it. I want to like to go through it with you, and I think we'll like see how you do with the prep for it and all that stuff. I think that'll be interesting. We'll see if the doctor will even let us in the room. Um, are, you, are you prepared? Do you know what to expect? Are you nervous? Do you have instructions? Yes, they're coming, I guess. Or they get, I got brief instructions, but I don't know what to expect. Um, Make sure you read those instructions earlier than the day before your procedure. Because right. if you have any questions, sometimes it's not totally clear. Um, or you might hear something from one person and then the handout they give you is a little different. Sometimes I hear people say that. So make sure you review it. Uh, at least a couple days before so you can ask questions before the day of or the day before. Especially if your procedure's on like a Monday. My favorite is a patient will have a procedure on Monday at like 10 a.m. and I'll get an email like over the weekend and I don't, the first thing I do in work is often check email but 
not always. Like sometimes I'm late. Sometimes patients are waiting or show up or whatever. And then I'll get the email at 10 a.m. and the patient's procedure is at 11 a.m. and they're asking about like the prep or whatever. And, yeah. you know, I, I need, a, if you have an appointment on Monday, you should do your homework during sort of work hours the week before so you can ask questions. Because they're, the rules are cumbersome and long. And you do need 48 hours of mental, physical preparation. Don't drink red stuff is sort of a good guideline also for people. Do you know why that is, Joe? You know, like the what? Gatorade, this red Gatorade that's right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, because red, if it comes through, if we see, if we're in there and we see a big pile of red, we have to be like, is that blood? A lot of liquids I hear the, the whole day before, pretty much. Yes. So right. we discussed it briefly on a prior show. We won't go into details, but you are getting a colonoscopy pretty much because of some family history stuff. And uh, it's, you're, you're, we're going to go through it in more detail. But just tell me a little bit now, like, uh, are you nervous? Are you scared about it? What, how are you feeling about it? Or have you not even thought about it until I brought it up to you right now? Pretty much till now. I'm kind of excited. Maybe I'll become like some sort of uh, colonoscopy uh, famous person or something. Because you'll find something really crazy in your colon. Or because of this podcast. Because we're of gonna the podcast make you famous. is what I'm yeah. saying. Like, yeah. yeah, you guys are going to make me famous through a make procedure. Colon famous. Col- the rest make of the you colon so famous. Much. And we'll see. Hopefully it'll have a happy ending. But who knows? We'll it's going to be down there where you live, right? Which is yeah. near San Jose. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I'm not sure how easily we're going to be able to film that. But we should try. You'll be great, buddy. Step-by-step step checklist. Great. We'll be there. Can't probably. wait. Yeah. There is something I want to mention briefly. I, as a parent, am very good now by not judging other parents. I'm very good about that. I mean, you'll see like people who aren't parents or have their kids are grown up and they've forgotten what it's like to have like little kids. You'll see them judging young parents, and I find that despicable. Like, you know, when you go on a plane and like a baby's crying and the guy looks back and be like, oh, I can't believe a baby's crying on my plane. And they like, look at me. I'll be like, fuck you. This is not your private jet. Just let the kid cry. What, what do you want? There's no option sometimes. Anyways, so I don't judge now that I am a parent as well. Except in this one situation. If I'm in the hospital and I see your baby crawling on the hospital floor to play... I am going to judge you. <laughs> I'm going to judge you. And I may even ask you to not let them do that. Yeah. Because I see that. Do you I, see I saw that? that? Every now and then. I just saw it this last week. And I'm like, oh, please don't do Please. Like where? The lobby of the hospital? The cafeteria of the hospital? Or just like a random floor? Well, I've seen it, it, it all it's over. it's not really okay, honestly. It's not okay anywhere. In any public yeah. place, really. And, and they clean. Obviously, a hospital's very good about cleaning. And... They clean the rooms that patients are in. They go and they even clean the floors, I think. I'm pretty sure. And uh, But still, yeah, it's really gross. Yeah. There's a lot of things that fall on hospital floors. People are walking with shoes into places that have a lot of germs. And then they're walking into public places that, that you wouldn't... You would hope don't, but hey, they're dragging those germs there. I would say if there's a child crawling on the sidewalk, I mean, my dog pees all over that sidewalk and my dog shits all over that sidewalk. I'd rather nobody be crawling on their hands and knees or without shoes. Agreed. Agreed. Just saying. Yeah. The airplane thing is good. My sister who flew with a one-year-old baby who was screaming and somebody said, your baby's screaming. What's what's wrong with her? What's going on? And my sister looked at this person and was like, I don't know. Why don't you ask her? <laughs> <laughs> what did, I can't believe you actually said something. Well, actually, that's more than usually people do. Usually, you just get these looks. Like I see people giving yeah. those looks. You know, actually, when I first went on the first flight with my kid, 
I was like so nervous that my kid would cry that I made these little like pack- <laughs> these little like I made little packets with like a Starbucks gift card in them. Like you made like, like a goodie bag, like a goodie bag for people around us in case like they had a meltdown on the plane. I'd be like, so sorry. Here's this. Go get yourself a cup of coffee. That was how I did it the first time. But <laughs> and then he he flew great. Pretty good and then, idea. But but now I'm just like I dare you. To shoot me a bad look. I dare yeah, you. You're like, I'm not going to give you a gift card. I'm going to take your coffee out of yeah. your fucking hand. Yeah, be an adult. All right, everyone, stay tuned. Coming up next, we have an interview with Dr. Raina Audish. She's a critical care doctor who experienced her own critical illness just after finishing her own critical care fellowship. So she's an amazing speaker. She has an amazing story. Stay tuned. And again, Thank you to Nadim, our uh, producer, um, and thank you to Lizzie and Joe for doing the editing of the show. If you haven't already, please follow us at The House of Pod at Twitter and Instagram. That's at The House of Pod. If you have any questions, get us at hopquestions at gmail.com. That's hopquestions at gmail.com. Or call us at 408-444-6623 and tell your friends it helps. Okay, we are back with Dr. Rena Audish. Am I saying that correctly? Perfectly. All right, excellent. Pulmonary critical care physician, director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program, and the medical director of care experience at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. She is also the author of the book In Shock, which is essentially a medical memoir of her own critical illness. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. So as Kaveh said, you're a pulmonary critical care doctor. You take care of patients. For our listeners who don't know, that means lung disease and also those in the intensive care unit, the ICU, which are the sickest patients in the hospital. Your book, In Shock, describes your experience as a critically ill patient yourself in the ICU. You, This is the hospital where you work and you were sick there for months, needing five surgeries. Am I correct? <laughs> um, physical therapy, recovery. And for our listeners who haven't read your book, and everyone really should, can you just recap for us um, your story? Yeah, of course. Um, So I had just finished my critical care fellowship, which felt like really a culmination of my life's dream. I had always wanted to be a physician, and it was the last day of my fellowship. And I happened to be seven months pregnant because as a female medical trainee, you never want to disrupt your training. And so I tried to time this pregnancy so it wouldn't be disruptive. And I had this terrible onset of abdominal pain that just came out of nowhere. And what happened was that there was a tumor in my liver that we didn't know that I had. And it ruptured. And when it when it burst, it was just like an artery being severed. And so I lost all of my blood volume into my abdomen in a matter of hours and went into the hospital really in what we would call hemorrhagic shock. Um, And from there, lost the baby. There was a placental abruption, had to have massive transfusion, was placed on all forms of life support, and um, 
really nearly died. I was coded in the operating room, um, had multi-system organ failure. If, if I had an organ, it didn't work. Basically, my kidneys, liver, lungs all shut down. I had a stroke. I think my heart was the only thing that really held up at all. And from there, then had this really protracted recovery. And everything I thought of that I knew about medicine really got shifted onto its head. And I saw things through the patient lens that I hadn't seen before. And it was a real lesson in all of the things that I didn't learn during my education, during medical school and residency and fellowship. During all this critical illness, um, one of the things you've talked about was that role as a patient and how different it was. And one of the most striking things I've heard you speak about is the cavalier use of language that uh, we as medical physicians, and probably even you before this, I assume, mm -hmm. used. We use phrases that um, we don't think twice about. Mm -hmm. I know this, you, you talked about two phrases in particular that you heard, mm -hmm. and you, you heard them, they probably didn't even know that you could hear them mm -hmm. while you were in that state, you know, while you were intubated and sedated. But you heard them say things like, she's circling the mm -hmm. drain. And, uh, oh, we're, we're losing her. We're losing her. She's trying to die on us. Mm -hmm. These things, you know, these terms that we use all the time, we don't think about them. I, it's funny in my residency, the girl I was dating at the time was not a, in medicine at all. And, uh, she asked me like what I, what I was doing that day. And I, I told her that, oh, there was this patient, he was circling the drain and she looked like she got hit in the chest with a bag of bricks. She was that shocked. Yeah. Like that would use language like that. And I was like, oh, wow, that, yeah, that, that's not great, is it? She's like, you're talking about a human being yeah. as if they're a dead fish. That's right. what you do with your goldfish, right? right? I, I didn't realize it until then. I was like, oh my God, this, but it's the language we use. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, why do doctors talk like this? Is this just because of our training or is it because of an attempt of us to sort of depersonalize the situation so we think at least we can deal with it better that mm -hmm. way? I think it's all of those things. You know, I've been in operating rooms like that and I see rooms like that where you're just trying to cultivate a sense of urgency in the people around you. You want people to move faster than they're moving and to recognize the acuity. And so we say things to each other that mean, you guys, like pull it together. This is happening now. We don't have time. And I always thought that was okay until as a patient, I heard it and thought, my God, I can hear you. And there has to be a way to do that without having the patient feel that sense of panic. And I think we can. There are lots of places that have code words for these things or just have, have determined a way to do it where it's less hurtful. Well, do you think that there's an inherent da danger to doing it, even if the patient can't hear it? You just the using this language, you think that it's it's a bad thing, even if there's no patients that hear it. I've tried to get away from any language that I wouldn't use around a patient, even in sign out, even in a closed doctor's lounge where I'm talking about a patient, because I think it informs how we feel about people. So the labels that we use, the sort of medical shorthand that's supposed to make it easier for us to understand each other 
it always feels reductive to me and as if we're missing the true essence of who the patient is. And and the point is that you're you've made is that you don't know who what family member is standing right behind you and maybe our listeners don't know but no matter how sick a patient looks, no matter how dead a patient looks, you know, you can attest mm-hmm. to memory and hearing and cognition and and feeling, right? And this is something that we don't appreciate when somebody looks like they're not alive or that they're asleep or that they're unconscious. We don't give them that respect. Can you elaborate on the, the patients trying to die on us and your experience with that? Because I thought that was really um, a profound insight that you gave. Yeah. it. You know, when I heard that, that I was trying to die on my team, what I really felt was that we were on opposing sides, that they had declared that they were on one side and I was on the other and that we were somehow in an adversarial relationship. And that was revelatory for me because I know that I have signed out ICU patients with those words. I know that I have said he tried to die last night and felt some sort of sense of success that I had prevented it and now it was the day team's problem. But I had never really thought about as a patient how that Um, interpretation of my own intention, that attribution would feel so false and harmful to the physician-patient relationship. Yeah. You're like, I'm not. I'm trying everything I can do, right? Literally, I cannot try harder. Right. It's like you're not only on opposing (laughs) sides, but it's like accusatory. You're like, this is not what I'm doing. I promise you. This is sort of something that is an inherent problem, I think, with doctors. We talked about this even on a much smaller scale. Like when we have an outpatient who we've tried everything to cure, like their simple problem with, but it seems like, or we feel like we're being met with resistance from the patient. No patient is trying to sabotage their own care. No patient is trying to die on you. But oftentimes we get frustrated because we can't fix it or whatever it is, you know, and we don't know how to handle it. So we, we assume that, oh my God, this patient's being difficult. So it, it's amazing that this happened with the story. And it's it's such a eye-opener that they were like essentially outside your room, I guess, when they were saying this stuff or, and using this kind of language, or maybe they were even hovering over you. Is that how it was? Both things happened. So in the operating room, right before I was sedated was when I heard she's circling the drain, she's trying to die. I'm sorry, she's circling the drain and we're losing her. And then when the SICU rounding team was outside of my door in the ICU, that was when I heard she's been trying to die on us. First of all, them using the phrase, what was it? We're losing her. We're losing her. (laughs) That's so cliche. Like, I didn't didn't think that people actually use that like outside of TV. We've, We've all said circling the drain. And I guess we are all trying to use something, you know, uh, some abbreviation and it does convey a lot, right? We are using words to convey, um, situations and it, it does feel hostile, but, um, it is interesting to, to pick and choose and think about what you're saying more carefully to be more intentional. I think that's all that I would hope of ourselves is that we can have some intentionality and that idea that we are somehow diffusing tension by using light humorous language around the time of a death Mm -hmm. feels false to me too. I think it's, it's probably not as healing as we make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Along the lines of difficult patient, we have a segment on the show called How to Be a Better Patient. Mm-hmm. And we just try to be as condescending as possible. And it really feels cathartic. 
I think you would enjoy that part. It sounds fabulous. We encourage patients to email us and tell us how to be better doctors. We we think there's a good dialogue to be had, but we mostly come off as jerks. So I apologize if you listen to any of those segments in advance. Duly noted. Yeah. Can I ask one thing about that period when you were really critically ill in the beginning? You also kind of described this out-of-body experience mm-hmm. that you had, seeing everyone working on you while they were trying to put lines in you and intubate you and all that stuff. What do you attribute that to now? It, that's still hard for me to wrap my brain around because it was such um, a very real experience to me in the moment. Uh it was the first thing that I wanted to tell my husband after I was taken off the ventilator and I was able to speak because I was so worried that I would forget it or I would die and I wouldn't have a chance to tell people because there was such a profound sense of peace about it. And I just remember thinking, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's incredibly peaceful. And that I think because I was on massive amounts of opiates, um, it didn't have the impact that perhaps I hoped that it would have because everyone just sort of looked at the morphine drip and was like, she'll be better later. You're like, shh, exactly. Go to bed now, honey. Exactly. That was the look I got. But for me, that experience, you know, later I was able to tell people things about the operating room where people were seated that I shouldn't have been able to see and... Um, I only know my experience of it. I, I hear that there's a sort of neurological explanation for all of it, but I'm less interested in that. That's not fun. It's not fun at all. No, your version's much better. Thank you. I like validation. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, Rana, that amazing story. Just, I I can't believe what I'm hearing right now that, that you went through all that and that some doctors are so unprofessional. And uh, I just wanted to know, through that whole experience, you almost died uh, as a patient. You know, how has that changed you as a person in general? It's hard to even identify things that haven't changed um, because it was really transformative for me in terms of how I try to care for my patients. I think I'm much more generous towards what they need rather than what my agenda is. I'm able to kind of relax my agenda and focus on what their goals are. Honestly, when I came through it, I was just grateful for everything around me. I remember seeing like flowers and feeling like I'm just so glad that like flowers exist. Like this feels like enough to me. It it became really impactful just to be alive. And that's obviously a hard feeling to hold on to every day um, because life gets in the way of that. But I think gratitude and a sense of um, purpose are probably the two biggest ways that it impacted me. Thank you. Great. Sort of following up along that, um, how do you think it affected you as a doctor? I know that's a big question. Yeah. I always thought as a critical care physician that my purpose was shortening the distance from illness to health and that all of my efforts should be expended in that space. And to me, any time spent just attending to suffering that was happening was just taking away from my role, my job, my purpose. And it was a complete frame shift for me to realize that 
unless I attended to the suffering, unless I saw what my patients were going through in a way that felt real to them, where they felt witnessed and supported, that the healing was secondary, that it wasn't as meaningful, it didn't feel humanistic to them if they didn't feel seen. Mm. And and that has really been a, a profound change for me. So you're saying, and your experience as a patient, you said that there were many times where you didn't feel seen. And I think, again, this is what we want our listeners and people to understand that, you know, people and, and doctors need to hear this. And it sounds like this is a big focus of your career now is to make sure that people or doctors understand the difference between a human and what they're going through and the disease. Yeah. And this is something that you're, how do you, how do you teach the next generation or the current generation or the older generation to sort of change that perspective and, you know, not necessarily seem very focused in their own bubble on themselves and their career and, and the disease and the cases as, you know, we say, oh, this is a great case. That's how we talk at work as opposed to like, you need to hear this woman tell her life story. You know, it's a different language. There's so much that I think we can do better and differently. And medical education has a huge job of really instilling so much medical knowledge into these trainees in a short amount of time. And there's no doubt that they need that medical knowledge. But I think we can do better in terms of the way that we teach it. And truly, it it is changing from the time you and I went to medical school. There's so much more humanism embedded in the curriculum the problem is that the, the students come out of that and then they see our culture and they see that we don't value it mm-hmm. and they get acculturated to our bad habits and they they want to belong and so they reflect our behaviors. And, and so I'm less worried about the medical education piece of it as I am about the graduate medical education piece where I think we break a lot of them slowly. And why do you think that is? I mean, we all make the excuse, oh, there's not enough time, you know, um, but in the end, it is probably a a culture issue, right? So you need the older folks and the current folks to to buy in. It is. It's culture change and culture change is almost imperceptibly slow to a point that it's frustrating because on a day-to-day basis, it can feel like it's not happening. But there are things that we said 20 years ago that we would never say now. And, and I think each day we're moving closer towards who we really want to be. Yeah. Like Gomer. Yes. So there was this book for our listeners called the house of God, like 1979 or whatever. And the term Gomer comes from get out of my emergency room. I didn't know that until Lizzie told me that just recently. It's a term that is still kind of still used in medicine. We still see it. So along the lines of trying to educate these, you know, the younger generation and change things, what, if any, resistance are you getting? So that's an interesting question. There's been less resistance than I thought there would be. And I think part of that is just because I'm so openly vulnerable about my story and it's hard to sort of look at a patient and say, no, that's not who we are when that's who we are. And Mm -hmm. in my patient role... I have enough experience to sort of be credible. Um, but the the main criticism, I guess, is we don't have time, as Lizzie said. And I think that that not only is an excuse, it's just not true because when we have more compassionate encounters, it's been shown across every specialty, whether it's the ER or primary care or surgery, they're actually shorter 
because people feel heard mm-hmm. and they feel known and they feel understood. It, you know, I remember, I forget the actual numbers on this, but they did that study where they looked at how long doctors thought they were listening to patients talk before they interrupted them. 17 seconds. 17 seconds. <laughs> That's as, like as long as they thought they could. And I'm sure the doctors thought that was like a minute or two. But that's that's not a lot of time to listen and to somebody. If you let the patient go on to talk without interruption as long as they feel they need to, it's about 90 seconds. So what do you think um, are physical cues or um, I guess mostly physical cues, obviously spending time and listening and shutting up, but um, obviously sitting is one thing. What else would you recommend, you know, to young doctors or, or me and Kaveh? And what should Joe tell his doctor? I'm still a young doctor, by the way. So I, I fall into that group where you could educate me because I'm young. Wow. I'm a millennial. I thought you I'm, told me the other I'm, day I text you were the same age as Fred Savage's dad Shut up. in Wonder Years. Shut up, you. That's right. It's old. <laughs> yeah. You used to Listen, his dad. Yeah. Remember how old he seemed when yeah. we were a kid watching Super that show? Old. We are that age now. Yeah. Mind blown. Exactly. Sorry, go on with what Lizzie was saying. <laughs> um, I think if there's one thing we can think about doing differently, it's how we interface with the EHR, the electronic health record in front of our patients. Sure. Yeah. I, I think our patients see us inputting data when they're looking for connection. Yeah. And that can be very alienating. Yeah. Well, you said also as um, a patient, I, I assume this is your experience, but now that you empathize in this different way that you just have no power and no control over the situation. And, and as a doctor, we need to appreciate that you describe patients as in a hostage situation. That's how they feel. So anything we can do to make that person feel more comfortable and less out of control would be a great service, right? Thinking about a patient as if they think they're a hostage is a very dramatic terrifying thought and it immediately makes me feel bad for every single patient even if they're perfectly healthy it was you know when we wrote that article about hostage bargaining syndrome it felt like a very charged phrase that our patients would be labeled in that way and I had a lot of concerns about it but the more I dug into the way that we communicate with our patients and how they communicate with us the more parallels I saw to hostage bargaining and you're right, having that lens really allows you to level the power imbalance because the two things that patients lose almost right away are a sense of agency and a sense of their identity as a well person. And anything we can do to give them that back is really meaningful. So, And it's funny, you don't even know that that's it. Like, I'm a woman, I'm a doctor, there are all these things I didn't, but I don't think I'm a well person you know, and then when you lose it, I just, I can't even, you know. Health is a privilege. Yeah. And so many of our students and residents only know privilege. Right. Because they're typically students, residents are in their mostly 20s. So the healthiest and, and the most privileged. So what are some of the things you're doing to teach the medical students and the residents? We have a communications curriculum that we kind of crowdsourced and, and used Vital Talk, which is a national program um, that we've relied on heavily to form our own communications curriculum. And so all of our physicians get training with improvisational actors where mm-hmm. they get to act out really difficult cases. Um, 
It's been really powerful, I think partly because we have amazing improvisational actors, so it mm-hmm. truly feels real in the moment. Um, although no one enjoys role play ever. <laughs> yeah, they made us do this at our medical school. Do you have any interest in making the older doctors do this as well? They do. They do um, this as well, yeah. Yeah, that was important to us right from the beginning was we knew that the medical students and residents wouldn't value it when they got to the wards if they didn't see it reflected back Mm -hmm, to them. mm -hmm. So the older physicians actually take the same course Mm -hmm. and then they take a separate teaching in real time course so that they can teach it at the bedside Hmm. because they are the experts in communication. Right, right, right. right, right. You do learn a thing or two along the way, Mm -hmm. you know, doing this job, particularly with the kind of stuff you do with really sick patients. Mm-hmm. Along- I just I know so many people who embark upon these actor scenarios with profound anger mm-hmm. and defiance. No matter how great those actors are, mm-hmm. I've seen colleagues when I was a student, resident, and even today, just walk in totally blocked, mm-hmm. unopened to the experience. I sometimes feel that way too. I sometimes feel that way. Yeah. I I think it's completely normal to feel, you know, you're in front of your peers, you're being watched. Everything about it is uncomfortable. Um, It's really hard, but there's real work that can happen there that if it's done well, I think can be transformative. Yeah. Along the lines of modeling and the fact that this whole saga that you describe in your book in shock takes place in the hospital that you work at now how it what is that like to work in the place where all this happened do you like go across a corner and run into like the room that you were in getting coded and have like flashbacks i mean how could it not affect you yeah you know it's been 11 years now and i think there's been a lot of really good work that's happened for me internally. And I think I've unpacked a lot of my feelings about it. I do still have small things that feel like triggers. I don't love rounding on the room that I spent months in. I sort of, (laughs) um, when I have a patient that's admitted there, which is rare because they're an overflow patient, um, I don't hear all of the words that people are saying Mm -hmm. because I'm in my own head about it, but my team knows that. Um, I also dislike doing consults on the labor and delivery floor. That's hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a part of the hospital that I don't love. The NICU is another place that's hard, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's all growth. I mean, it's a, it's for doctors that haven't experienced on any level being a patient or having a close loved one or a child in a hospital, they'll never quite understand that I don't think um, and that sort of ties in to the next thing I want to talk to you about which is how you were labeled a difficult patient mm. personally I've been probably labeled a difficult person, family member difficult person difficult person if we're being <laughs> difficult honest human but difficult I've probably been labeled that you know when I had a, a loved one who's hospitalized mm-hmm. for a while it's it's very challenging because I I feel of myself that I'm pretty, I mean, if I can tolerate Lizzie and Joe, I'm like a goddamn You're saint. A saint. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. So I'm pretty modest easy uh, and that easy saint. to get along with. So it was a frustrating thing for me to be like, why would this, how am I not getting along with you? So can you describe a little bit of your experience with that and what that taught you? Yeah. I, you know, I think anyone who advocates 
for themselves or a loved one or has questions that feel outside of what the team wants to answer in that moment can be labeled. It's We really, we label people as difficult when all we're really saying is it doesn't feel easy for me. Um, and we do an exercise with our residents where we have them write down every label they can think of, good and bad. And really unpack how even saying things like the patient's very accepting of her diagnosis, how that can be, um, in a sense, it is, and it's permission for us then not to provide as much information as we might in a situation where they're less accepting of their diagnosis. And so all of these labels, whether they're positive or negative, I think are really shorthand that are meant to serve us and, you know, we're not who we should be in service of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a part in the book I, I think that maybe Kaveh is referring to where you were in pain and I think you told the resident that you were um, like six out of 10. We use this pain scale for our listeners. Zero is none. 10 is the worst pain in your whole life. Obviously what you were experiencing the day you went to the hospital and started your, your journey um, and that you told this resident you were six out of 10 and that you wanted pain medication and that was an affront. That was, he, you know, he responded in this way that was like, six out of 10 isn't that bad. You must be drug seeking if, if you want some pain medicine. So I feel like that, you know, is a very poignant um, point that you make with just how, how difficult doctors are, right? And it's not a difficult patient. It's just, he wasn't listening to your pain. Like, you, you, you know, next time don't use the pain scale then if you're not going to get your right. pain serviced, you know? And I think difficult really just what it means for our patients is that they are people who have reached the end of their ability to cope in that moment. And whatever they're showing you is the best that they're able to muster given all of their frustration and lack of agency and, and harm. Yeah. And it shows you how quick like we are to judge. Like it's one thing to go into an emergency room, see somebody that fits some profile in your head of drug seeking, and then to think, okay, this person's looking for some pain meds. It says something else too, that another fellow physician is to be suspected as well. I mean, it's our first inclination to be suspicious, which is, I don't know, probably a good thing for the most part. I mean, there's there's something beneficial in there, but it's funny that's our first instinct. I think we're so sensitive to being manipulated. I think that's the the hardest thing for physicians, and we guard so fiercely against being manipulated that we're quicker to judge than we should be. It's funny. All it takes is one patient. I think we all can remember that one patient out of tens of thousands who was very flagrantly manipulating you when you were a young doctor and to get you the morphine or whatever, Mm -hmm. and that it does scar you because then you're like, because you, you know, we pride ourselves on being so smart and then we're duped Mm -hmm. and you're like, never again, you know, and it really... (laughs) It's sort of, it's so sad that that is the, one of the things that absolutely sticks with me. And you gets know? perpetuated. Absolutely. And how many patients are harmed for that one incident. So I've heard you talk also about um, taking your pulmonary boards on OxyContin. Yes. I'm not sure if you want us to delete that, <laughs> that, that you don't recommend that. But by the way, she passed. So that's pretty strong work. Baller. It's kind of like when you play darts drunk, you should only ever play darts <laughs> drunk. Those that are pointy. That kind of implies you should be doing medicine drunk too. <laughs> yeah, that's that's which is probably not what no, you no, want no. to do. But do you, do you, um, you know, in this part in your book that you write that 
you know, when you were trying to your home and taking Oxy, you were in a lot of pain, um, taking a narcotic, that's what Oxycontin is, that you could, you were thinking about it in the medicine cabinet, even when you didn't necessarily need it and you needed to get rid of it. And I, again, you are not someone whose story is about recovery and drug addiction, but someone who is legitimately needing pain that, that you have this called to you in a way. And you described it such a wonderful way, like that it hijacked your brain. And again, it was only a few pages, I think, but I, it's such a profound statement of addiction. And I'm sure you have more, more to contribute to that story. Well, I was trained probably the same way that you were, where we were taught that if someone was taking narcotics for pain, they would not get addicted, that they wouldn't get high from it. And therefore there would be no reward. And so I was discharged on what was really a street value of $30,000 of Oxycontin. <laughs> I like that, I like that you've done that, that math. People look that up. But, um, <laughs> I felt like I was curious. And I you had bills it. to pay. I, I was get curious it. and poor. No, and I I honestly hated how it made me feel. It made me feel nauseous. It made me feel cloudy. It made me feel sleepy. It really didn't even take away the pain. It just sort of dulled it. And I wanted to get off it as quickly as I could, despite the pain. And when I tried to do that, this thing just kicked in in my brain that was like, "No, you still need it. No, you can't stop." No, it'll make you feel better. And I could almost hear this narrative from outside my body and observe it. And it felt other than me. And, you know, that was addiction. I had become psychologically addicted and chemically addicted to something that I didn't want to be addicted to. So I just had to get rid of it because for me, not having proximity to it made it not an issue. I wish that everyone, you know, could be so lucky that that would be such a simple solution. It worked for me but it's not the normal case yeah so we discussed this a little bit in the past with people who've been addicted including doctors in episode 31 we had an anesthesiologist mm-hmm. who got addicted to opioids and she described it in the very same way it's like your brain gets hijacked and uh honestly i believe at this point that um there is something out there for every person no matter how strong they think they are, no matter how uh, educated or well-raised they are. It's not a moral there's issue. There's not a moral issue at all. There's something that will get you. It's chemical. You may not have been exposed to it yet, but there's mm-hmm. something that will get you. So um, one last question for you. Um, do you have honest hope for change in the way we practice medicine? Do you see that happening? A hundred percent. I think what we haven't realized yet is that doctors and patients actually want exactly the same thing. They want time with each other. They want meaningful relationships and they want healing and to feel seen. And if we actually banded together, the amount of power we would have would be immense, Mm -hmm. but we've sort of been put on opposite sides and that's not how it should be. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been an amazing interview. We really appreciate your time being so vulnerable with your story. Thank you so much for your time. No, it's I'm been so awesome. Glad. Very inspirational. Thanks Thank for you. On. Everyone should read the book in shock. And if you've ever been a patient, if you're a doctor, at some point, unfortunately, we'll all have one of these perspectives. So we appreciate your book and your time. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks. You.
The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. All antidotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible. Don't give us the date, but like, what is it, in a week, two weeks, three weeks? Uh, the end of, ju- uh, end of July. All right, or give us a date. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.